1 John chapter 2, we've studied as far as verse 12, 1 John 2. Verse 12 says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Do you see the family theme that's happening right before you? A lot about fathers, a lot about children, little children, a lot about um, the young men here in this passage. It's the family attitude, the nurturing, the caring, the body of Christ that you and I are to be to each other. I see them celebrating each other's victories, admonish, admonishing one another, just reminding each other of what their foundation and who their foundation really is. This family approach that we read of in the Bible is supposed to be a part of your upbringing in the faith. You are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then you're to be surrounded by your spiritual family for your growth in the Lord. John often says little children, and there are two different Greek words that are translated little children. And the first one is um, technia. And technia means the one who is born or the one who has been born. Have you been born? Have you been born again? Have you been born of the Spirit? Then you are the little children spoken of here, the technia. And there's also another Greek word that is used. It's called pedia, and that means a child who needs instruction. So are you a child that needs instruction? So when we read little children, that's me, that's you. We've been born of the Spirit. We've been born again. We're in need of instruction for our lives from the Lord. So he's speaking to us. So every time it says little children, if you're in Christ Jesus, if Jesus is your Lord, you're one of Jesus's pedia. You're one of his technia, those who are born of God. Verse 12 speaks to little children because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. So I ask you the a first question. After confession, do you think you need to be more forgiven? Because according to the scriptures, just in the last chapter, it said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've confessed, then you'll never be more forgiven than you are right now. Now You never be more clean. You never be more washed than you are right now. That purity from Jesus is priceless. I'm forgiven. I'm washed. It's not like I'm mostly clean. The word says, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So if you've abandoned sin, you have no intention of going back to it. Lord, I don't want to sin against you. You haven't left those avenues open for temptation. You've come and confessed. That's a lot different than a token confession with that mindset that you're just probably going to go back to it. But confess means that you and I specifically speak of our sin to the Lord. Instead of, oh, Lord, you, you know what I've done. Have you been that way before? Like, I don't even want to say it, God. It's so bad. You know what it is. The word says to confess your sins to the Lord. Say, Lord, I, I know that I've sinned against you. And to, to enumerate the things that you need to be cleansed of. Confess 
and be children of God that are cleansed, born ones that are cleansed. Now, you may understand your forgiveness more at certain times. Has it been that way for you where you're being tossed and fro by a certain temptation, back and forth by a certain temptation, or you're struggling with a certain sin, and you just feel like you're treading barely to keep your nose above the water, and then you, you do what you should, and you go to the Lord, and you confess, and your sense of being cleansed is just so great. Like, Lord, look, you've taken my sin from me. It's amazing that you've done it. I don't know how you do it. I feel so clean. And you grasp his love in a greater way. It might hit you after you've confessed your sins, but if you confess, you'll never be more forgiven than you are right now. That's, that's where we live. That's where we ought to live as little children before our Father. Another question, is your forgiveness glorifying to his name? Because look at the reason for your forgiveness. Is it just for us? In fact, is it first and foremost for us? According to the word right here, it says that, our sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. It's no credit to us. Our forgiveness is credit to Christ. It's to lift up his name. It's to bring honor to his name. So your salvation and your sanctification are for the purpose of glorifying God. The scriptures tell us a lot about the importance of a good name. What book says the most about the, a good name? Proverbs, definitely, right? And about how your reputation is tied to your name, even as a sinful person, right? This is about the name of God and about the reputation that's fastened to the name of God and that your forgiveness is because of his name. It is for his name's sake. His name's sake. It's about his great name. So his faithful forgiveness is a testimony of the greatness of his name. So don't ever drag his name through the mud his title through the mud. Don't use it as a curse word. Don't blaspheme the God that saved you. The precious name of God is lifted up through his faithful forgiveness, right? May the name of Jesus communicate that truth, the, the truth of hope, the truth, the truth of forgiveness that he brings to us. Now look at 13. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And isn't there the same wording in 14, if you go down there? Almost exactly the same, written to the Father. So that's emphasis by repetition, repeating truths. Now, how often do truths get repeated in the context of the family? <laughs> Things that need to be said. Are they said just once? The child may think, you already told me that, or they might or even say, you already told me that. And what's the answer from the parent? Well, if you do what I told you to do, then I wouldn't have to repeat it. It's the same in all households. It's not like you, don't you wish as little children, the Lord just said it, and we did it. And we didn't need to be reminded. We didn't need to be brought back to the truth. Here it is again. This repetition is a reminder for me and you, because we are little children that are in need of instruction, it's the same way with us as it is with our kids. They need the reminder over and over again. And this is written to fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. What is the reminder here? It is to fathers. Just as John was a spiritual father, there were others still alive at this time. Think about this. 
who, who were with Jesus when he walked on this earth. So John was a teenager during Jesus' earthly ministry. So how about the little boy who brought his five loaves and two fish? Is he still around? How about those little kids that they tried to push away from Jesus? And Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. Are they still around? They, they're not sold that they would have been automatically dead already, right? How about the, young, the boy who was possessed and he threw himself into the fire, but Jesus delivered him? So there, when you look at this passage, it definitely could be in terms of fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. Who is the one who is from the beginning? We'll go to the beginning of this book and go to the beginning of the Gospel of John. That's Jesus. You've known him, fathers. And there would have been church fathers, so to speak, those who were young when Jesus was walking this earth, who would now be advanced in age. But also fathers, here in the original language, means those who are mature. It means those who are leading in the Lord. And in the context of the original language in the Greek, it can really mean parents. I'm not just saying that. Those who know the Lord, those who are mature in the Lord, those who have exercised their spiritual senses. So now in the context of the family, John is writing to those who are more mature. Now, years don't always equal maturity. I'm finding this out. Just because you're older doesn't mean you're always more mature. It's, that's true socially, and it's also true spiritually. There are people, and they're not really that old in the Lord, but they've grown in the Lord quite a bit. So maybe in years, they're not that far along, but in maturity, there are. And then there are Christians, and don't point to the person next to you or mention anybody, and they've been saved for a long time, but there's still quite a bit of immaturity. So it's not necessarily about longevity. This is about like those of you who are solid and mature in the Lord, fathers in, in the church, so to speak, those who are mentoring, those who are making disciples, although we should all be making disciples. And look at what it says to the fathers. You have known him. Ask you another question. Is knowing him your life's pursuit? Now, not just knowledge, but knowing Jesus, knowing the Father. Is that what you live for? Now, it is true that gaining knowledge can contribute to us knowing God, right? But it's also true that knowledge can puff up, can lead to pride. Knowledge has to be used in a, in a godly manner. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So it's not just saying knowledge in general. It's saying you know Him. Knowing God for yourself. And look, it's not just reserved for the fathers, for the mature. Look at the middle of 13. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. So all of us, we, we know God. It's for the young in the Lord and the old in the Lord alike. If you're around the church for any length of time, with a halfway open ear, you're going to grow in knowledge. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to know God more because knowledge, once again, can be twisted. So it's saying here, you know the Lord. You know who he is. Let your knowledge be for the knowing of him. His desires, his attitude, his character, his mercy. Do you know him better? We sang it tonight. I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to see you. Do you know him better? Do you have a longing to know him better? That's our growing up in God. 
yes, we want to know, but it's not just to teach. It's not just because it's our duty. It's not just so that we can arm ourselves. It's so that we can know the person of the Father. It's so that we can know the person of the Son. And knowing God changes our actions. Yes, it is emotional. If, if knowing him isn't emotional, something's probably wrong, right? <laughs> to some extent. But it's also very practical. It changes the way that we live. We know that from earlier in the chapter. Go back to verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Do you see it right there? So it's a life changer when you know God. He who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. I look at the straightforward nature of, of John's teaching, and I'm thinking as I'm trying to study this, is it just because he's old that he's just like, boom, you, you're a liar, he says. Like that's, he just puts it right out there, says it like it is. I don't have time to waste. If you know God, it's going to change your life. You're going to become more like Jesus. Knowledge alone doesn't necessarily cause change, but knowing the Lord does. So is knowing him your life's pursuit? Oh, I, I want it to be, because I definitely get distracted. There's a lot of pursuits, and some of them are even somewhat noble. But what's more noble than knowing God? Nothing. Look at the middle of 13. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. So here it is, repetition, and then we're going to also get some addition to that repetition, or not. We're going to get some addition as well as repetition later on. Look at 14, the middle of that verse. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. So this instruction, again, is to a certain segment of the church, isn't it? The fathers, the mature ones. But now we have this written to the young men, to the younger generation, specifically the young people. Again, the broader context includes both men and women. You see humans, there's man in there. They're both male and female. Mankind includes both men and women. So look at what it says here, to the young. These are young people that are not losers. Did you notice? They're winners. They're overcomers. They have defeated the wicked one. He's not writing to them because they're getting pounded by the devil. Instead, he's writing to them saying, look, you have overcome. You have gained the victory. Now, how did they gain the victory according to the word? It doesn't just say you're victorious. It says you're strong because what? The word of God abides in you. Young people, inside you lives God's word. In every corner, in every cupboard, it's inside of you. And because of that power, because of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, you can and will defeat the wicked one, the evil one that's mentioned here. And that is the devil. The word of God filling you up all of the parts of your life. Be that kind of young man. Be that kind of young woman. The enemy will poison the idea of the word of God abiding in you and try to tell you, you know, that's for old people. I'm a, I'm a person of action. I'm a, I'm a man. I'm a woman of reality. I don't have time for the word of God. Maybe later the enemy will poison you with the idea of letting it abide in you. It's, it's just for the weak. That's for them. I don't really need it. Let it be 
your daily bread, and God will cause you to defeat the enemy through his power. Let it dwell in you richly, as the scriptures say. Abide in you. Jeremiah 15, 16, listen to this verse. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. So it's not just for prophets. It's not just for pastors. It's for the young to be victorious. Now, look, this is about overcoming Satan himself. Young person, Satan is gunning for you, strategically speaking. He is after you. He wants you to be paralyzed. He wants you to be defeated. He wants you to be distracted. He can't afford to have strong young people roaming around. He really doesn't want anybody to be strong, but a strong young person for the Lord, a strong young man. Satan wants the name of Jesus to be desecrated. Look at those so-called Christian young people. They're not like Christ at all. God must be a lie. Truth must be relative. Grace must be a fairy tale. Oh, that the young men of the church would be as full on for God as the worldly people are for their sin. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If we were just as extreme for God and the things of righteousness as sinners are ardent for their sin. Are they all into it? Oh yeah, they're all in. Are we that all in for God? And any godly woman would say amen to that. Lift up the name of the Lord with your life. It is not for later. It is for now. It's for today. Now, it is first and foremost for the Lord, your life. But when Satan comes after you, he wants to harm you. Nothing that he tempts you with is truly good. It's all destruction. It's all emptiness. It's all disappointment. And this passage is going to go into greed and lust and pride. Those things are like a, a shiny fishing lure with tons of hooks hidden on the inside of all that flashy stuff. That pride, that lust, that greed, that lust of the eyes, that lust of the flesh, that pride of life. The Lord wants to use you as an instrument of his love and Satan wants you to be defeated and to be an instrument of his pride and his lust and his greed. He wants to harm the church through getting a hold of the next generation. You, you guys are, are the next teachers. You're the next mentors. You're the next parents. You're the next evangelists. The enemy knows the Lord's plans for you. Do you know the Lord's plans for you? Do you? And do you see that the stakes are high? Now, specifically, young men, God has called you to lead the church. Servant leadership. Are we afraid to say that? Are we? Young men, God has called you to be the next generation. The Bible says that the young men are supposed to be deacons and elders. They're supposed to be overseers. Shame on us if we do not give the good word of God to the young people that God sets before us. Shame on me if the God puts somebody right in the church house. This is the church house. And I fail 
to give them the word of God that's going to make them strong to defeat the evil one. And I say, it's just good enough that you're here. It's just, it's just good enough that you're not out there committing crimes right now. Is that what the church is? No, the church is to be equipping and say, look, God has given me this opportunity. And with those young ears and with those young hearts, are we just filling time or are we filling them up with his word? Are we entertaining or are we edifying? I would not want to be, and I, I hope that I, I never am, the person that squanders the opportunity to teach the young person. People ask, well, why don't we just have something for the adults and we'll get you know, somebody to watch the kids? No. If the adults are getting built up, the kids are getting built up in the Word of God too. In fact, why don't the adults just go waste their time in amusement and we'll teach the kids? Why aren't we insisting? Like, look at, look at their lives. These are the young people. And how are we going to help them in this world against the wicked one if we don't give them God's word? It's there for them. Do not love, and that's the present imperative. It's a current command. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The last question, which I think I failed to state, was have you overcome the wicked one? You know how. You know where the strength comes from. But now I ask you, where have you set your affections? Do you see that in verse 15 and 16? What have you allowed yourself to long for? That might seem like an odd question, but we know that we have longings and desires in our hearts, and not all of them are of God. And some of them are mentioned here, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Are you feeding your love for the things of the world, or are you feeding your love for the things of God? Because your love can grow. Isn't that true? It can be directed. It can be shaped. So are your affections set on the Lord and on the things of heaven, on everlasting life, on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? The other option is to just let your heart chase after what it feels like is important. That's disastrous. Our loving Lord is telling you that you don't have to love the world or the things of the world. You don't, you don't have to be in bondage. Now, to clarify just a little bit, John is also the writer of the Gospel of John, where he says, for God so loved the world, speaking cosmos of the people of the world. When it says here, do not love the world, it's talking about the worldliness, things that are against Christ, things that are not of God, right? A way of living, the system of the world. Don't love it. Don't participate in it. That's the command. You have the capacity to choose. I have the capacity to choose. Choose the Father. His ways are pure. Now, maybe you're thinking this, young person or not so young person. Well, I'll just choose both, a little of both. I'll choose a little of the Lord and a little of the godlessness of the world. Well, tell me how that goes for you. Actually, I know how it's going to go for you. Because Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. He's going to end up loving one and hating the other. So when we love the world, 
our appetite for the things of God shrivels. And we start to despise the Lord. That's a terrible thing to even think about. When our love for the things of this world, the pride, the lust of the flesh, the materialism, which is the, the lust of the eyes, when we feed those things, our love for God wanes. Isn't that true? We only have one heart to love with. And when we pour into the love of the world, we're taken away from the love of God. We grow cold to him. We can even start to blame him or despise him. The love of the world will swallow up your love for the Lord. Don't let that happen. Receive this command, this imperative. Do not love the world. Don't love the things of the world. The world has nothing for you. There's not one bit of it that is going to carry you through true eternity. There's not one bit of it that's going to satisfy. Fun for a season, maybe, but not in the long run. Now, this summary of sin that the Word of God gives us here, God is so good at just encapsulating this is your sin, like enumerating it and handing it to us. We might not always like that clarity. You know what God does to me? He just, in his word, just like reaches out and like puts his hand like right, yeah, that's, that's the sin. Lust of the flesh. I know what that is. <laughs> that's all the immorality, right? And there's all kinds of it. Lust of the eyes. The things that we want that we want money because it can get us the life that we want and get us the stuff that we want, the pride of life. Oh, I, I think I'm really something. I think I'm better than the next person, so much so that I don't even want to associate with them. They, they're not worth my time. That's pride. Because he wants to keep you from the destruction of sin, he summarizes it. There's no better way to explain it than this. This is the Lord telling me and you, I know what you're going through. I'm going to boil it right down to the basics. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. There it is. That's really poignant, right? Just pursuing us with that straightforward, this is what it is. But then the word also tells us, I think of that second to the last verse in, in the book of Jude. Now unto him who is able to keep us from stumbling and present us faultless before the Lord with exceeding joy. Like, yeah, we stumble around and we've got the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. But do you know, we have the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who can keep us from that continual stumbling and to present us faultless before the throne with singing, with exceeding joy. You might not like the Lord reaching out and putting his hand right on the root of the problem. I look at this list and the first one's passion, right? Lust of the flesh, misdirected passion. The second one is possessions. Possessions aren't wrong, but it's when we love them. Pride's always wrong, so unless you kind of interpret it in the sense of, well, you know, I'm, I respect you, I'm proud of you for making the right decision, but th that self-pride, it's, it's wrong before the Lord. It's just what I need. Nothing is hidden from him. He sorts out our sin that's complicated to us. It isn't complicated to him. The reverse is to think that God doesn't understand. The reverse is to, to think God doesn't know the temptation that I'm going through. He doesn't see what's tugging at me. He doesn't know what my life's like. He doesn't see how, how weak I feel. The reverse is, is to not pay attention, is to not be that little child that needs instruction and say, well, he, he, doesn't, 
He doesn't get me. He does. And that's why he said, I want to protect you from all this. Come and make me your love. Make me the love of your life. See, I'm hearing noises again. Anybody else hearing noises too? I hear noises at home and my family tells me that I'm hearing things. And I think it's just that I have superhuman hearing. I don't know what it is. It's like, did you hear that? And they're like, no, I don't hear it. I'm going to find out what it is. I heard that and everybody else heard that little noise. And the world is passing away. This world, look at that. It's going down the tubes. Morally, physically, materially, it's the, the corruption is just all around us. It's passing away. It's not going to last. And the lust of it, that means the desire for the things of the world. It's not, it's crumbling right underneath us. Why would we put our trust in the things of men? Look at how foolish they are. I mean, Bill, when you approach people with the gospel, like, are you going to trust men or God? I mean, it's tr- trusting people even in option. That's what I want to know. People tell me, oh, they're, they're worth my trust. No, they're not. The Lord is worthy of my trust. Every day he shows me more and more how this world is passing away. The desire for it is going da- down the tubes. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So we invest in our loves. The things that you love, you invest in. You invest your time, you invest your energy, you invest your money. And some investments are passing. They will not last. They'll fade away. They lead to folly. But other investments abide forever. Are you investing in the eternal good? I, I eat things without even realizing that I've eaten them. Every time I, I, if I were to keep a log of what I've, I've eaten, it would probably be impossible. I've tried it certain times, like, man, I can't believe I ate all that. Just like this big, long list. Whoa, look at everything that I ate, right? As I'm going through. What if we could look at the time in our week and say, okay, this is everything that I did. This is everything that I thought about. This are, these are all the places that I spent myself. How much of that could I directly correlate to what lasts forever? Now, I realize there's an around-the-way thing to make almost anything last forever. But how much of, you know, you say, okay, I need to make a living, and I'm here at my job, and, and that's so I can pay for my food. If I didn't have food, then I couldn't, my family wouldn't be alive, so they couldn't do the work of the ministry. You see what I'm saying? But how much of my life is directly invested in souls, in things that are going to last forever? Where is everything I'm going to be working for, everything I'm working for going to be in 100 years? And when you, if you were to look at your week like that, would you say, yes, a lot of this is going to be here. It's going to last forever. The word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The world's passing away. The will of God abides forever. There is a straight and narrow path, and it pleases the Father. It leads to joy in this life. Even if you have tribulation, even if you have persecution, that path leads to joy in this life. And it leads to eternal comfort in the next life. Let him affect your affections. Where have you set your affections? Where have I set mine? Give it all to him. His ways are better, so much better. His ways are higher, so much higher.
We choose to trust you tonight, Lord. We sometimes take back pieces of our lives and we admit that we're not trusting you. We're analyzing, we're calculating when we should just be saying, here I am. We want you to fill us up, Lord. We, we know where your word is. We know how to get to it. And your spirit lives inside of us. May we feast off of your word so it's flowing out of us to those that have not received your grace. Lord, we know that the days are short. And we know that it's your desire that none should perish. Not one. You don't want anybody to be lost. That's just amazing to me, Lord. Even the worst person, you're not saying, oh good, they're, they're going to be lost forever. No, you, you have this heart of mercy for each and every person that you've made. And I pray that we would be a reflection of that. Lord, that our affections would be pure and right. I need that. Consecrate us, Lord. Set us apart in a way that's powerful and distinct. Not just weird, but, but strong. Let us be strong in the Lord and in the power of your might. Let us defeat the evil one in your strength. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray, and it's to you that we sing. Amen.